Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece of the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our Instacast episode where we share our quick takes on this week's episode of Game of Thrones. This week's episode was season eight, episode four, titled The Last of the Starks. Big D, what'd you think? I'm a little worried. I think we, we, we might have a little fight on our hands tonight because just in a couple of minutes we were talking, I think we have some uh, differing views on this episode. So for me, as the episode's going on, I was a little nervous. I said, how can they follow up last week? And as soon as the feast scene concluded, I realized how happy I was that the Night King was dead. The whites are gone. And I felt like we're finally back to Game of Thrones. The show I fell in love with wasn't about dragons or, or an army of the dead or, or vagina-born smoke assassins. It was about people and their never-ending quest to better their own situation. The Night King managed to bring all these people together, and it took less than a day for them to start fighting and clawing at each other. And I was happy. I felt like Game of Thrones was finally back. I didn't even have to wait for the feast to be over to appreciate the return to form for Game of Thrones. They got back to the clever dialogue that we loved, some of which we saw in episode two, and our favorite characters, getting deeper into them and just celebrating those characters, which is a perfect note for the final season. Uh, It was less of a comic book and more of a novel, I felt. And Game of Thrones, look, they did a great job with episode three. It was mind boggling, the visuals and the scope of the thing. But they are much better at choreographing a festival than uh, a battle. This uh, scene of everyone celebrating the win, they had a dozen different conversations going and all these relationships swirling and they intertwined all of it in this like carousel display of amazing set design and ambiance. I thought it was weird that they were celebrating so soon, but I just sat back and enjoyed the fact that there was clever banter going on. But also underneath all that, as you said, this political intrigue already starting to develop. See, but I don't think it started out as a celebration. It started out as more the, the conclusion of a funeral. There was a somber mood until Daenerys chose the, the smart move to legitimize Gendry. And at that point, it started to change and people started drinking and it got a little looser. And, and for me, Game of Thrones, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it how much I was like, fuck, Game of Thrones is back. We had gotten wrapped up in the Night King and the Wall and magic. And it's fucking not about that. It's about the little human moments for me. Like the Hound, we've always seen him as this big, strong guy. doesn't say much, uh, but he's humanized for the first time, uh, you know, where he shares his guilt with Sansa about failing to protect her. He said, if you'd come with me on the King's Road, you, you wouldn't have had to go through Joffrey, Ramsay, Littlefinger. Uh, and she says, you know, well, if I didn't do that, I certainly wouldn't be this little bird for my entire life. And people might say this is some sort of a transformation of the Hound to make it more marketable or enjoyable by the audience or that. They're playing fan favorites and saying, look, the audience really likes this character, so let's soften them up a bit. I think this is a perfectly logical development of this character, the Hound. If you look back to early in the show and in the books, he's always had a concern for Sansa. He's always wanted to protect her in little ways, calling her his little bird. And now that he doesn't work for Joffrey, now that he's seen the world, he's traveled, he's been freed from the shackles of the situation that was forced upon him and what he was forced to become. This is truly who he is. I think this is the purest form of the hound we've got. He's still going to call people a twat. He's still going to resort to violence, but we're getting down to the core of who this character is. And he's 
very believable. I would call him the old soul of Game of Thrones. Like he is what this show had at its heart from early on. Yeah, during that uh, you know that feast, there was only two people who weren't celebrating: Daenerys, you know, who lost. I, I, we don't know what she whispered to Jorah because they didn't show it in the subtitles. But I think she had a love for him, even though it it wasn't a romantic one. And the Hound, the Hound is thinking, what what are you all celebrating? What have we won? Yeah, we got a couple more years, but he almost knows we're back to where we were. And this episode is littered with these moments of old Game of Thrones. We got to see Braun return, and I thought that was wonderful in the sense that we kind of had this air of fairy tale. John's flying around with Daenerys. They're fighting the army of the dead. Heroes are surviving against all these odds. And Braun comes in the room with that crossbow, and he cuts that fairy tale shit real quick. You get returned back to like, whoa, there are real consequences here. I fully believe that if that conversation had gone the wrong way, he would have shot one of the Lannister brothers. Like, I don't think that's there's any doubt about that. And he leaves with this menacing promise or this menacing. He goes back in the shadows and you now have to wonder about Braun the rest of the series. He is a real threat. <laughs> yeah, Braun's pragmatic. He comes and just lays out. He says, I've weighed the odds. OK, you guys beat the dead. It's like, okay, you got two dragons. One of them's a little hurt. You got half the troops. Uh, you know, Cersei has this. He's like, I'm going to bet on you. So he's still hedging his bet. There's no downside for him. And that sellsword mentality, there is no loyalty. No matter what Tyrion and Jamie had promised him in the past, and they end up promising the world. I don't even know that they could deliver. Could you deliver Highgarden to Braun? I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I don't see why not if the old powers fall out, but I think Tyrion is making that bet to get himself out of that situation right then. But you do know Lannisters always pay their debts, so apparently they, they do promise it. One thing that is a bit of a fairy tale, though, is how quickly Winterfell got cleaned up. I thought that this episode was going to start with bodies everywhere, rubble in the courtyard of Winterfell. Everything's been torched, knocked over. Things look like they're doing pretty okay. Like Winterfell's all tidy again. I think in season seven, we had jet packing. Now we have jet vacking. Everyone's just having a party. Everything's in, in tidy little uh, formations and things are just humming again at Winterfell. There has to there has to have been some time that passed because yeah they they gathered up the dead and they're doing these giant pyres and there was a beautiful wood stand that they built you know to to burn them all organized depending on which group they were in but where are the couple hundred thousand whites are are we going to get a wide shot of Winterfell and in the distance you're just going to see a pile of them far away from the castle and even bother to burn them that shit that would have taken probably a month to clean up. This all happened to happen for a reason, though. And again, we got to remind ourselves we got a couple episodes left. So do we want to spend an episode with them cleaning up bodies or do we want to get <laughs> no. to the guts of what the show is? In this, in this episode, I really think that the prevalent theme was about family. Uh, you saw different examinations of what family was. Is your family those people who fought beside you at war? Is your family the people that you grew up with? Is your family the people whose blood you share? And I think that was beautifully reflected in the funeral scene with who each character chose to mourn. Daenerys is mourning Jorah. That was her family. Uh, Theon is being mourned by Sansa. That's a part of her family in a different way. Uh, Lyanna Mormont is being mourned by Jon Snow. Their family is the North. And I love that scene where Sansa pinned Theon uh, with the Stark pin again, claiming him from the Ironborn and making him whole. I thought that was really beautiful. And this entire scene was great. And this entire episode was great at that. My favorite part of all, though, was seeing the Lannister brothers with Tyrion leaning 
on Jamie in the drinking scene. I just, it was very, very touching to me. And I, I felt a lot when I saw that. Yeah, even even Daenerys, like I had mentioned that in the last episode, that I, I didn't really feel much once Jorah died. But Amelia Clark, she killed it this episode for me. From the death scene to, tour, I don't want to jump towards the end, but when the camera's slowly closing in on her after you know, what happens at the end. For me, this is probably the highlight of all the episodes that she's been in. And she was emotionally connected to what she should have been feeling. It wasn't just that cold stare or that quick look and she walks out. I thought she killed it. Yeah, the last two episodes have not been great for Daenerys. So in episode three, she loses basically half of her military <laughs> force and most of the Dothraki. In episode four, she loses her now best friend, I guess, Missandei. And on top of that, Another dragon. And if I have one gripe about this entire episode, it was the introduction of these scorpions. I know that I've said in the past that it's a fantasy show. We got to let some things go. But in this case, I couldn't get over the sheer physics of it. I'm all for surprise deaths and amazing images on the screen. But I just can't fathom how a scorpion mounted on a ship on choppy water somehow hits a flying dragon at altitude. Not once, but twice. Uh, in two vital places, the chest and the neck, it doesn't sit right with me. And the Targaryen Navy just didn't spot uh, Euron's fleet coming in. Seems a little weird. So uh, this is the first death. Last uh, the, the 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 on the small council, we asked what was the most surprising death for you. Mine was Hodor. This one caught me off guard. I was like, oh shit. I was like, what? I almost thought it was a vision. Like Danny was going to wake up and it was going to be because she's starting to get paranoid. At that, the feast, she's seeing people going off and pairing up. She sees the way that the North idolizes John, that, you know, he's the one giving the eulogy to all the fallen in the North. And when that death happened, I was like, shit. And I disagree with you. This is a new Scorpion 2.0. This thing, it's it's larger. It seems like you can, you can aim it much easier. Uh, it's got a heavier duty bolt that goes a little further. And if, if one ship had hit, two or three times. Then I would have said bullshit, but they fired from what looked like at least eight to 10 ships. So if you figure 10 bolts in a general area that you spray, the dragons are pretty fucking big. I'm thinking maybe one goes through a wing hits. It, it's plausible to me. Especially when you got people like Daenerys pulling evasive maneuvers, but oh. like turning broadside when they're firing at you, not, not climbing, not diving. Let's just, let's just turn broadside. But but she just fucking felt like she was out back with John flying around the waterfalls. She was like, yay, whoa, we're all going to be good. And then the bolts come out of nowhere. How about you fucking stay on alert? You're at war. How do you forget about Euron? How do you forget that? I can just see the emails coming in right now of people imagining themselves in the writer's room. And I kind of see it, too, where the writers are sitting there going, okay, how do we level the playing field? Here's what we do. We got to take out some of the Targaryen Navy and we got to take out a dragon. I got it. Scorpion 2.0. I don't like it. I like the Scorpion. I'm just glad that the cool weapon that the prop designers have been talking about all year wasn't a two piece spear with dragon glass because that wasn't too impressive. But I think these were pretty badass. I liked them. Now, we've seen the show play small and play big, small in conversations between two people by fireside, big in battles like the Battle of Winterfell and the Last Night. This episode put it together in one extra length package, 
And I want to focus on some of the smaller things. Uh, one of them is this conversation between Arya and Gendry, uh, where he proposes marriage to her. And I know at first blush that it seems a little bit weird that with everything that happened, the first thing on his mind is marriage. Like he becomes a lord and then he wants to propose to her. But I think it makes sense in the sense that he's seen her from when it was revealed that she was Lady Stark as superior, as someone he couldn't have. And I think that he was then shocked when she slept with him. And now he sees a way that they can kind of live happily ever after. He is a much more naive character than Arya. And this scene beautifully displays that. Well, I don't think it's naive. I think he's obviously secretly loved her for a long time, but didn't think there was a chance of it. And and you you reference when he, he calls her my lady all the time. And that's showing an insecurity to his position that, that he doesn't think he ever has a chance, that he's below her. He's He's a bastard. He's a blacksmith. And once he feels like he's on that same level, that he's worthy, even if she slept with him, it, it, it seemed genuine. The euphoria of surviving the battle. He just became the Lord of Storm's End. This is his moment. You got to go for it. You take a knee. And I thought that Arya let him down nicely. Right. She gives him a kiss. She says that anyone would yeah. be lucky to be with you. But the show does show consequence here. This is what the show has always been about. From Ned Stark's death uh, to every character arc to every incident, including the Red Wedding, it's always about the consequence of action. And in this case, Arya cannot undergo the changes she's undergone and become this deadly killer, but also be a lady and a wife. She has always been something different, and the show is acknowledging that. And if they were to say, yes, she's going to marry Gendry and become the lady of Storm's End, but also be an assassin... That's a lesser show. That is not this show. So I mentioned how much I love the fact that this seemed to be returned to form for the old plotting and scheming and political intrigue Game of Thrones that I love, that I fell in love with. There is a line, though, and there is a scene that has me very, very worried that some of that magic and some of that uh, that that fantasy is going to come back into my my real world of of uh, you know a power struggle. When Tyrion comes to Bran and he's he's remarking on the the wheelchair, and they reference you know the the saddle that Tyrion had designed for him in season one when he became paralyzed so he could ride again, and Bran seems to question whether some of the designs were actually Tyrion's or they go back in history. Uh, but there's a line there where Tyrion you know expresses that he envies Bran, and Bran says, "You shouldn't envy me. I live mostly in the past, and I'm so scared." that Bran is going to be doing something. And if he's living in the past, I have this terrible dread, this feeling in my gut that he's going to start going and meddling in the past. And he's going to try to undo or this living in the past. It was not a throwaway line. Yeah. I hope that that was more just a statement on Bran's fading out from the show, maybe because there's enough meddling going on uh, between John Daenerys, Sansa, Tyrion, this that political intrigue is coming back in the show, and I, I'm with you. It's my favorite part. Yeah, and, and you don't need this magical meddling when you have the, the the living doing everything they can to undo what they've just accomplished. John is I've said it before, John's a fucking idiot. Okay, he's not the he's not the brightest bulb. You know, he 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 truly earns the loyalty of everyone who follows him. He is a war hero. He's charismatic. He's out there leading the charge, but he is not bright. We questioned his strategy of defending Winterfell or him charging solo against Ramsay just because, you know, he shot Rickon 
or failing to mount the dragon during the rescue north of the wall, taking his time, but telling Sansa and Arya is undoubtedly the dumbest move ever. Without a doubt, Daenerys tells him, if you want it to go back to the way it was, you can do it this way. Don't tell a soul. Right now, we contain this information. And he just runs, tells his sisters, and what does he think is going to happen? And when Sansa is talking to Tyrion on the wall, and she obviously reveals to him, and then Tyrion tells Varys, and now we've got eight people who know. I'm watching that, and I'm like, Sansa, you dumb <laughs> shit. You're supposed to be the smartest person in Westeros. You suck at keeping secrets. You kept it for less than a day. You're an idiot. Then, while we're putting in notes, I check the email coming in, and Bryant in Philadelphia writes in, and he's like, this is a masterstroke. She's playing the Game of Thrones. She knows that this information being leaked will completely upset the balance of power. Yeah, once you get it to, to Tyrion, you know he's going to tell Varys. Then Varys is going to tell whoever. It's out there. You can't contain it. But we have differing opinions on what her intentions was. I think she's honestly shocked to her core to learn that Jon is not actually a Stark. You know, he's a half Stark. But knowing this information gets out there only causes a rift between Daenerys and Jon. Daenerys seems perfectly willing to remove any obstacle between her and her claim to the Iron Throne. Jon has always been passive. He says, I bend a knee. I don't care. I'll tell them. He doesn't know how the real world works. And I think Sansa letting that information out is a clear attack on Jon. By letting it out there, it's going to get back to Daenerys. Daenerys is going to be forced to either eliminate this threat or to take a step back, which she's not going to do. So I don't think that there's any chance that Sansa was looking out for Jon by releasing this information. And I see it in a different way. I look at it as what she intended to play out is exactly what played out in this episode, where she wanted it to get into the minds of Daenerys' advisors in hopes that they understand that Jon has a better claim to the throne. He's more well-liked. He is a war hero. And that question comes up between Varys and Tyrion, like, who would be the better ruler? I think that was her intent all along because Daenerys knows it too. Sansa knows what Daenerys knows, which is if people find out that Jon Snow is a Targaryen, is a Stark, and he has these armies behind him, he has everything in his court except for a dragon and some unsullied. Yeah, but were you a bit were you a bit surprised at how quick uh, Varys went to full-blown treachery? I mean, he openly says in that conversation that they're having in the throne room, which I'm pretty sure anybody walking by could have heard, that he says to Tyrion, he says, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to look out for the realm. And he says, I'm saying it as plainly as possible. He's chosen the realm. How does Tyrion not, if he is truly still loyal to Daenerys, not, not, you have to eliminate that threat. Varys has openly said he will eliminate Daenerys if she chooses to attack King's Landing with civilians present. Yeah, Varys and Tyrion have been through a bit together, and they're both highly intelligent guys. But yeah, Varys is the, he's the master of whispers. He's the spider. I don't think he's going to be telling Tyrion, <laughs> hey, I'm pretty much thinking of, <laughs> you know. I mean, he gives him a look, and you know what that look means. Yeah, just do like the, you know, the, the finger across the throat. <laughs> you're, you're, you're in a giant cavernous throne room. People down the hall in the courtyard probably heard you. Wasn't too smart. But we did get an answer to one of the mysteries, at least I think so, is whether Cersei's pregnant, because she announces publicly that the lion will rule the land, the kraken will rule the sea, and our child will one day rule it all. 
thankfully she and Euron can stop doing it doggy style now. She can show the belly, so that's good. Yeah, and I like that Kyburn gives the little nod, like, yep, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. This episode also gave us very important information on what the North intends to do. Again, as a quick recap, uh, the plan is that John and Sir Davos are going to go down the King's Road with the main force, plus the Unsullied and the Dothraki, which I didn't know their Dothraki left, but apparently they are. They're all coming down the, the King's Road. It's going to take a little bit of time. Tyrion and his group with Daenerys and, and the bunch, they went to White Harbor. Uh, we didn't see that march, but they got to White Harbor, got on ships, and then intended to sail to Dragonstone with the dragons giving air support, which didn't go so well. And then Jamie has decided to stay in Winterfell for about a day and then decides hmm. to change his plan. So that's what's going on right now. We get a little bit of an idea of, of who's left, which way the forces are all going. And it's interesting that they split them all up uh, just as they brought them all together in Winterfell to give us some parallel storylines and kind of add some variety to the mix. Yeah, it's also dangerous that you're splitting them up because we finally get a rough casualty count. They claim that only half of the Unsullied and the Northerners have been eliminated. It seemed to be a much higher head count when we first saw the scene because the dead just kind of rolled through killing them and the piles of the human casualties that then especially rose up once the Night King resurrected the second wave. But to split up at this point, it's, uh, you're cutting it real thin, especially down a dragon. Yeah, the move to Dragonstone seemed really strange to me since they had no recon on what was going on at Dragonstone. So thankfully, they arrived there and at least the island itself was safe. But I agree, it's a very strange move as opposed to just, you know, moving south altogether down the King's Road. You got time. Yes, and some characters, though, thankfully are heading south. And I couldn't believe it. I never thought I would have gotten it again, but we got the Hound and Arya Roadshow Part 2. I loved it the first time, and I hope we get some scenes of them on the road. I know we're not going to get the chicken scene uh, or you know, them sleeping and killing a farmer in the middle of the night, but th they were so good. And they're both going south, it seems, on a dual suicide mission. They both have unfinished business. We assume that it's going to be the Hound Mountain Clegane Bowl that everybody's been dreaming about. Arya's going after Cersei. And neither one of them seems to be planning on coming back. Let's take a second to salute this scene as well. You have the two of them on horseback in this beautiful landscape of just snow everywhere. Winterfell's in the background. And you get to breathe a little bit. You're not with all these people. It's just the two of them. They say they don't really like crowds. And you can feel that. And it's one of the things we don't talk about as much as we should with Game of Thrones. is just their ability to evoke what the character is feeling. I felt that breath of fresh air. I could almost like feel that cold air in my nostrils going like, yeah, you know, just these beautiful black horses and these two characters getting away from it all, going back in the silence. And you know, every time Arya sneaks off screen, someone's going to die. Yeah, but the Hound even says... Uh, you know, if I get hurt, you leave me to die. She's like, yeah, probably. So it ends on that note. And she's, she's, you know, basically stating what their relationship is, but the relationship that I learned that blew me away, you're a dog owner or a, a dog guardian, as you like to call yourself. I thought John had this strong bond that the Starks and their Steyr wolves, but maybe now that John knows he's a Targaryen, he's a complete dick to ghost. You know, he's saying goodbye to Sam. He hugs him. Sam, you're my best friend. He just glances at Ghost. Ghost kind of goes, mm? and then he leaves without saying goodbye to Ghost. Does he not forget that Ghost saved his life a couple of times? And sacrificed an ear. Yes. John's a dick. Yeah, I thought at least a pat or something. Maybe he's just respecting his wolf sovereignty and saying, you know, like Nymeria, like you just, hey, listen, I understand you're all grown up now. 
you were my puppy, but now you're a wolf and go enjoy the North with Tormund. He's going to have way more fun up North with Tormund. It's like when, it's like when your parents tell you they, Oh yeah. Uh, your dog, he, uh, spot he's, he, we found a very nice farmer. Yeah. He's living on a farm now. Yeah. I think his life, his life up North will be much more fun. Uh, but we got some information. I think answers a big mystery for one of our characters. For years, people have been, you know, commenting about Podrick. They've nicknamed him Pod the Tripod, and they were always assuming that he was this great lover because all the working women in King's Landing would whisper about him. Oh, that's him! That's him! When they're playing the drinking game, which is like I guess like a truth or dare, uh, Podrick clearly drinks to the Euro Virgin. So that leaves me only to assume that the ladies of King's Landing, they were amazed at his singing voice, that it was not his ability in the bedroom. Big D, everyone knows that game is called Never Have I Ever. Oh, it's been a long time. I'm sorry. <laughs> does does uh, anybody play Asshole anymore? That's the only card game I remember. I play Asshole every day. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you do. And two pieces of tactical information that are important to understand as we go forward toward the last two episodes uh, Cersei's plan is a typical reaction when you have a superior force uh, threatening your town, your city, and that is to uh, use basically a human shield tactic. So, so she knows that Daenerys and her forces are coming for her, and she could try to block all the gates, have everybody come into the city, hide out, and try to wait it out, uh, like a siege tactic, right? But she'll be seen as the cruel one. Then she'll be seen as the one starving her people when everyone knows that if they just, if Cersei would just surrender and abdicate the throne, they care more about the food in their bellies than the queen on the throne. If Cersei would just abdicate the throne and allow Daenerys to take over, then everyone can eat. The city would be free again. That's not going to work for her. So what she has to do is instead protect herself by forcing Daenerys to do something she believes Daenerys will not do. So Cersei's plan is to, bring all the people into the city, but leave the gates open. And so that Daenerys will have to fight through those people, will have to massacre the entire city. And she reinforces that with the execution of Missandei, uh, with the refusal of the terms, basically saying, come and get me. She's forcing Daenerys's hand. And every minute that Daenerys delays weakens her ability to attack. With every day, uh, Cersei will grow stronger. So I think Daenerys is right, that she needs to go in mercilessly and torch the whole fucking place. As she says, they should know who to blame when the sky falls down upon them. They've made their overture to parlay, and this is Cersei's fault. I'm actually surprised that Daenerys has held back so far. She has fought multiple times. She has taken the advice of her, her advisors. You want to break the wheel. You want to truly change. Then don't do what everyone else has done. Be different. But at this point, you have to go in there and roast them. I would start to question the loyalty of all my advisors and everyone around me. Why do you keep holding me back? Victory is at hand. If I had to kill everybody in King's Landing, but it eventually ended in a hundred years of peace, isn't that the objective? Right. People can evacuate King's Landing. No one's forcing them to stay there. Get the fuck out of there. You know dragons are coming. Let's go. You know that Yara has the Iron Islands. Dorne is against Cersei. The writing is on the wall, man. Get the fuck out of the city. Yeah, she should proclaim, everybody, you have 24 hours, evacuate the city. After that, I'm raining fire down on you. Just put a bunch of leaflets and have uh, Drogon <laughs> yeah, yeah. fly over, dropping them. Yeah, some psychological warfare. But I was as tense in that last minute. As Tyrion approaches you know, the walls of, of King's Landing, 
within reach of the archers. And he starts referencing the pregnancy. There's a look in Cersei's eye that she's acknowledging the danger zone that she's entering into. Euron could easily say, how does Tyrion know you're pregnant when it just happened? And then also that Tyrion has the information that Euron's not the real father. I would have bet money at that moment that she was going to raise her hand at the end and lower it. And we were going to go to black as arrows rain down on Tyrion. I thought he was 100% dead. Cersei has brought that wild card factor back into the show where, again, anyone can die. If you would have asked me at that moment, one, what am I feeling? I wouldn't be able to respond because I was so tense. My heart was pounding. And if you would have asked me to put a bet on it, I would have put five bucks on the fact that Tyrion's a dead man. Every indicator went that way. And again, Peter Dinklage, I got to say hats off to that guy. The character of Tyrion has grown and he has grown with it. Uh, in the sense that if you remember him from Nip Tuck and other shows, he was not the greatest actor on earth, but right now he's the most powerful character and the most powerful performance on all of Game of Thrones. And I know people don't like when I nitpick strategy, but Miss Sandy had a chance to fucking end the battle right there. She's at the edge of the wall. She knows she's going to die. Cersei's got her under her arm. All Miss Sandy has to do is throw her hands over Cersei's neck and jump off the wall. I was like, come on, do something. You know you're dead. And I know it wouldn't happen, but you know, in, in some alternate universe, she does it. Now, with this decision, Cersei has absolutely put her life in peril and everybody in King's Landing. And we see in a scene back at Winterfell that Jamie is leaving Brienne of Tarth. She's in tears, which was really heartbreaking. I, I love Brienne as a character. And also, I knew Jamie would do this to her. Like, he's, he's not a great dude. Uh, but he leaves... He says that Cersei is a hateful person, and and so is he. And so I'm wondering, is he going back to King's Landing to rescue Cersei? To be like, hey, listen, you gotta you gotta come to your senses. Let's get out of here, surrender, whatever. Or is he just going to take her out of commission? Is he going there to get inside the walls and kill her? No, I think he's come to the conclusion that he is almost as bad as Cersei is. That the things he has done in his in his what he called love for Cersei. You know, that he would have killed every woman, child, man at River Run to get back to her. That would, he would have done anything. He realizes he's as bad as her. I don't think he's going back to save her to get back with her. I think he's going to go back there and just try to eliminate both of them, make the world a little better place. But th there was no love loss. He wasn't, he wasn't pining for Cersei. So I think it's, it's maybe that last gasp to, to reclaim his honor. So listeners, write into hosts at shoutontv.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, if Jamie intends to rescue Cersei or kill her or something else. And another big question is the one posed by Varys, which is who would make a better ruler, Daenerys or John? For me, I think it's John. I think, you know, as long as John has good advisors, he's not the greatest tactician, but he he really he earns the loyalty of the people. Uh, he seems to care. He he puts himself in peril at risk for the good of the people, whether it was getting all the, the wildings through the gate, even though he knew it wasn't popular. He does what's right for the people. I think in the end that all the populations, all the living people within the, the seven kingdoms would live a better life under John. I'm torn on the question. On one hand, John's a dumb, dumb. dumb he's dumb. just he's kind of a dummy. Uh, but you even see Daenerys at this point where she, in this episode, where she leans over to Tyrion, she's like, uh, I can play the Game of Thrones too. And it's like, do you really think that making Gendry a lord is some real clever political shit? It's it's okay. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. There's 
no other Baratheon to take Storm's End and you get a loyal lord. I get that. But I agree with you. John grew up under Ned Stark. And this would be basically an ability to see the North uh, ruling the Seven Kingdoms with those values that were instilled. You know, he who passes the sentence must swing the sword and always remembering and acting in the benefit of all mankind versus just your particular house. I think there are a lot of good lessons there that John could uh, employ, but yes, absolutely. Big D he needs advisors and he needs them bad. Yeah. Let's keep in mind. I think it was, uh, I think Sansa said that, you know, Stark men have never fared well in the capital. Well, how long did Ned last? It didn't seem like he was there for a couple months. I think John would suffer the same fate. Somebody who's cunning and willing to play the game. John just doesn't see him coming. Yeah, and not just Ned Stark, but his brother and father as well. It's not a good place for Starks to go. No, no, not at all. All right, lots of food for thought for Tuesday's Deep Dive. Uh, please write in with your thoughts at host at com. Big D and I are going to bury our heads in the internet, in the books, uh, in the emails, and really dig up the best gems for uh, researching and sharing with you on Tuesday's Deep Dive. That concludes this week's episode of Chat on TV Game of Thrones edition. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Chat on TV. On Facebook, search for Chat on TV Podcast. The website is ShadowTV.com. If you'd like to email us once again, that's host at ShadowTV.com. And our voicemail line, if you'd like to call in, is 914-719-CHAT. Wherever we're fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please be sure to leave a five-star review. That helps the podcast grow. We've received so many this week, and you guys are so kind. Uh, it's really been powering us through this home stretch of Game of Thrones, putting out these three episodes a week, and we appreciate it. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Tuesday for our Season 8, Episode 4, Game of Thrones Deep Dive. <laughs>